0: and thank you for joining us. Super excited to have you on the podcast. To kick us off, for folks who don't know, can you give us a quick rundown on your background and what you oversee at Shopify today?
1: For sure. And first off, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm super excited about talking about platform. So I grew up in the era, I think, where people still wanted to work on Wall Street. So I did like finance and derivatives in school and whatnot. And actually, I started my career in doing like financial forecasting craft foods of all places. So we do things like forecast consumer demand for how many Oreos they'd eat in the next quarter, like literally. <laughs> so I lived in Excel and models and, and whatnot. And uh, about four years into that job, I kind of got a bit of an itch, an entrepreneurial itch, which I, I've always kind of had in my life, like I have a lot of side businesses. And with an ex-classmate of mine, kind of just Started bootstrapping what eventually became our company called Tunesy, which was pretty early for its time, but it was an experience uh, platform for YouTube musicians. So this is like way back in 09 before YouTube even had a music category. But it was also the time when like Justin Bieber had started blowing up by doing cover songs through his webcam. And we kind of built on that whole trend. So the whole idea of Tunesy was we would help these YouTube musicians monetize their fan bases by uh, enabling them to suggest and upvote and downvote different fan experiences. So they'd be able to like go on a date with the musician before the show or like go skydiving with them. And amazingly, like these things happened and these YouTube musicians were willing to do them because... For them, ad revenue on YouTube was very light or non-existent at the time. And really, they couldn't even make as much money touring because since they're homegrown on the internet, these musicians didn't have like density of fans in any particular city. So when they went around and started touring, they really wouldn't get that many fans to show up in a particular place. But what they did have was really engaged fans on the internet, which would be willing to pay hundreds, thousands of dollars for these fan experiences. So it's kind of random that we went into there. I think like a lot of it was just us exploring trends that were happening and then us wanting to build the business. So we bootstrapped for a year and then we were able to raise a couple uh, seed rounds from Angels and we quit our jobs like the next day. And then over three years, we built up the team to about nine. And then we were fortunate enough to sell the company actually to SFX Entertainment, which was a public company in, in New York, which actually owned like Coachella and Tomorrowland. So they wanted to buy the product to basically repurpose it for for DJs. Super cool. Yeah. So that's kind of how actually I started my whole career in tech, which is like, I didn't even know what like a single line of HTML looked like before then. But after the experience, I had to like learn how to write some front end code. And and through that experience, also, it just naturally, my co-founder did a lot of the marketing sales and fundraising. And I worked a lot with the engineering and design team. And uh, so after the startup, I was sort of like, okay, what should I do now? Should I like go back into finance or whatever? And I think I didn't want to. So, you know, through the startup experience, I just had met a bunch of people and I ended up chatting with some friends at a company called FreshBooks in Toronto, which not sure if you know about them, but they're about a series B growth stage company and they help Service-based businesses like do their accounting and invoicing. So when I had met with a founder and it kind of described what I had been doing in the startup, basically said, Hey, I think you're a product manager. Why don't you come here and, and kind of do what you're doing, but with one of our teams here? And I didn't know anything about what that even meant. But I said, sure, let's do it. And I think over the next three and a half years at FreshBooks, I I kind of built my own flavor of product management where all I had known as startups and just doing whatever is necessary. And then the kind of product leadership at FreshBooks was very, was all like 10 years out of Seattle and Microsoft, heavy on program management, heavy on process and frameworks, which I was very helpful for me to learn about how to break down problems with a product and how to build a really good product strategy around that. And what I kind of learned over three and a half years at FreshBooks was my own flavor, which is somewhere in the middle, which I'm pretty like, framework heavy around some particular things. But otherwise, like, I believe that product managers need to act as entrepreneurs inside of a company and that they need to think about inspiring and leading a team just as much as they do about, you know, the right answer. Three and a half years at FreshBooks, I I ended up as a product director there. And then through the startup ecosystem, again, I Kind of got lured into Shopify by a friend of mine, uh, Satish Kanwar, who is a VP of product at Shopify now. And it's kind of full circle. So his agency got acquired by Shopify. And his agency, Jack Cooper, was the one that built the prototype for the startup that I had founded. He kind of talked to me just as Shopify was about to IPO just under five years ago now. And I would just fell in love with the product, fell in love with the people there and their ambition. And that's kind of where I've been for the last about five years.
0: Super cool. I love the story from Oreos to uh, <laughs> <laughs> to tech, to the small world of being pulled into Shopify. That's awesome.
1: Just really quick, like what I do now is I, I did a lot of product management roles here, but today I'm a VP of product and I'm also the GM of the platform team. So the platform team at Shopify runs two major businesses. One is our developer platform, which we're pretty broadly known for. And the other side, which is our agency platform, which is we have a huge network of commerce agencies around the world who bring on new businesses online onto Shopify and then help provide services to those businesses over time. So we kind of run a network side as well there.
0: That's awesome. And what was the state of the platform when you joined a number of years ago?
1: So it was probably not as like strategically invested in as it is now. So today the team's about 200 people working on it on my team. And when I joined, it was maybe like eight or nine people. <laughs> and, wow. and, and there was no R&D on it, actually, kind of shockingly. So it's interesting, the story of Shopify's platform, we really started by just opening up an API for a business on Shopify to get access to their own data. So you just have a private key and you can say like, okay, pull all my orders or my product data. And then a business could then kind of match that up with whatever middleware backend systems that they have. So that that was the whole actually inception of our platform. And what happened over time was as Shopify grew and lots of businesses were on it, there became this ecosystem of developers who kept working with Shopify merchants and kept building the same thing for each of them. And that's sort of how we kind of fell backwards into the fact that, oh, wait, like we can actually build or enable developers to build one to many apps, build one type of app that will serve many, many merchants on Shopify. And that's kind of how the inception of the platform really started taking off. So, so when I joined, it was mostly a, a business team, like developer relations and operations, like doing app approvals and whatnot that were there, but we actually didn't invest in it. Particularly like an actual like R and D product.
0: That's wild. Just because it's so core to how at least I think about Shopify today, and you know we constantly see folks building new applications that are delivering huge value on top of the platform that you guys offer. So surprised to hear you know when you walked in it wasn't a core strategic initiative, but but glad you were able to uh, prioritize it
1: for sure. And, and the like the growth had just been crazy. The we launched our app store in two thousand nine and there was nine apps and it's 2019. Now we have like 3,700 apps. And those are just the ones that are listed on the app store. There's a whole other ecosystem of apps that are kind of custom and bespoke that are built, you know, for, handfuls of of merchants on our platform.
0: For sure. And so obviously you guys have made a pretty big investment in this team, in R&D, in go-to-market, on the platform side, everything you're sort of overseeing. I guess, how did you think about some of the strategic benefits of building a platform and investing in it heavily, and then also some of the risks associated with it?
1: For sure. The biggest strategic benefit was just our realization that and I think a lot of tech companies get this quickly, is that like you can never build it all, right? Like there is just a never-ending backlog that's growing exponentially. And the larger you get, the more diverse the needs of your customer base becomes. So we saw this happening, you know, pretty exponentially as Shopify has grown exponentially, but then doubly so at the same time we started expanding into brick and mortar retail. We started expanding internationally. So really like if you think of like a graph or chart of all the problems that we have to solve, it's growing exponentially, right? So what is our leverage here? We know that even with 6,000 people today, we can't build it all. Like the platform strategy is really this idea that by building what only you can, which is extending sort of this data model of commerce and opening up ways for app developers to solve problems that you don't even know about, that's actually the only way you can meet the needs of businesses around the world in any time period. So that's like really the product strategy. We cannot build it all. So how do we enable developers to build on top of, let's say, a core simple set of things that we'll build for all merchants and have them actually figure out, you know, what's needed in France or what's the right shipping provider in India or, or payment service in Ukraine that's required. And so we have a product philosophy internally, which is like, we're only going to build the things that most merchants need most of the time and everything else we're going to rely on platform.
0: That makes sense. And I guess, what did you identify during that time, at least when you were first launching as some of the risks, things that might've held you back from building a platform, just as folks think through, you know, building platforms on top of their own products?
1: Yeah, I'd say there's two major risks. One is just to your own velocity. If you're gonna build something with a platform mindset, it's probably gonna double, triple at least the time it takes to get something to market. Because like usually when you just build a feature, you just have to figure out mostly the problem is like what is the customer gonna interact with and what is sort of the data model that they need to use. But when you think about a platform, you actually have to probably build it at one level lower in terms of abstraction. And then you have to really launch an API first and you have to build your feature on top of that. So it really elongates the product cycle. So that's probably the first risk is just being slower for you know, eventual long-term speed. And the second risk is the overall risk of platform, which is when you no longer have control on what's being built, then you no longer have control on what your customers are always experiencing to an extent. And that's always risky, right? Like we pride ourselves on making a very simple product that like someone can build a side business on their kitchen table on the weekend with. But as soon as you start to say like, oh, and then they're going to use three apps made by three developers around the world and they have slightly different user experiences and things like that, you're kind of making it more complicated. And there is risk to that.
0: For sure, I guess on the first one and then on the second, like how do you actually mitigate the risk of increasing your development cycles? Is that just sort of par for the course, or is there anything you can do you know to shorten those dev cycles or mitigate that risk at all?
1: I think at the outset, you have to bite the bullet and just elongate it. <laughs> you have to believe that platform will pay off, and you have to know that this game is the payoff is not going to be even like in a three three year time frame. We're talking five to ten years mm-hmm. and But where it's really interesting is that where Shopify is at now is it speeds us up internally now. Because we've invested in a platform, our own teams can use the platform. So similar to how Apple will build its own calendar app and whatnot, they're using their own platform to do that. And so there's an interesting sort of like, it's sort of like a delayed gratification thing. You just have to invest now to speed up everyone in the future, your ecosystem, but also yourself. And I think a lot of tech companies that that grow to scale deal with that, where it's very difficult, I'm sure, you know, to ship something into the core product or into the core code as you become a really large business. But if you have a platform that kind of segregates, you know, critical systems from features on top of it, then it enables everyone to be faster.
0: Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And what about on the second risk? You talked about basically quality control, you know, to sum it up, I guess, What can you do to mitigate that risk?
1: Oh, there's so much. I think like I've probably spent half my job thinking about risk. So the first thing is like how you design the platform itself, right? Like what is actually possible? And I think one of the traps that people fall into and certainly a lesson we learned is developers are not going to do what you designed for. They're going to do whatever's possible. So when you think about opening a platform you're you're thinking, what are the use cases? Oh, we're going to open this API and we're going to let like, you know, them put an app experience into this part of the product and they'll make you know a, a product review app, it's going to be great. And while that probably will happen, the fact that you opened up an API, let's say with this type of data or enabled any app to put an experience into this part of the product, everything under the sun that can happen will happen over time. So that's number one, is thinking about what is technically possible with what you've enabled is the first layer of risk. The second layer is policy. And it's to policy I always think about as what is the company's expression of what it values and therefore what it wants to allow on the platform. So when developers invariably sign, sign up for your terms of service or whatever it may be, like how to not obfuscate that and just make it really clear, like, hey, we designed this platform to do this, right? We want you to build things that help merchants all over the world succeed. And as long as you're doing that, you're good and we actually write this in shopify's api terms at like the top as sort of like before they get into the 20 pages of legalese we just say at the beginning like here's why we designed it we want you to help merchants succeed and if you help merchants succeed then you'll succeed and so the policy aspect is very important because that is not only like your sort of legal right as a platform but it's also good expectation setting to developers and then the third thing is actually enforcing and operating your platform based on that policy. So we have a whole set of operational teams that do app reviews for all the apps that get built that handle any sort of incidents that happen that deal with customer complaints about like an app not functioning, all these types of things. So there's a very heavy operational component to this, which is not dissimilar to running any sort of two-sided marketplace that you need to scale as well.
0: And so how much do you think about, because you, you talked a little bit about at the beginning about how you actually build the API itself, right? And, and thinking about the different ways someone might use it um, if you expose certain types of data or whatever it might be. But then on the other side, like you said, there's a bunch of operational hoops that people jump through to make sure that ultimately the right types of things are being built or it's being used for the purposes that it was intended for. So how much do you lean on the technology side versus the sort of human side to make sure that quality control stays high? Or is it really a hybrid of the two?
1: I think it's a hybrid of the two with a preference to making machines do as much as possible. I think like machines are the only thing that are ever going to scale. So we try to do as much as we can on like automating certain security things around app approvals, on monitoring activity that happens across the API, because really, two things we don't want to hire thousands and thousands of people to be whack-a-moling all the time. And the second is just like it's actually impractical for humans to even do that at scale. But at the same time, human judgment plays a big role into making that machine and to training it over time. But then also, even like there are certain types of decisions that are just too nuanced for a machine to make, right? Just things around like, oh, like this app is doing X and is that right or wrong? And it's weird because it's not always as black and white as we'd hope. Like there are cases where, like, oh, they're doing something that we don't really love, you know, the way that the experience is, or it's a really like janky experience. But then the other side is, is it still helping the business? It's it still helping the merchant. And if so, you know, who are we to say that? That shouldn't exist on our platform just because our own biases and tastes thinks that it's bad. So like these sorts of nuanced things are where I think humans will always play a role. And then the other side is it is not static, right? What we care about, what the values of the company are, what we allow and disallow are a moving and evolving target over time. As the company changes, as the world changes, as consumer expectations on data privacy change and policies from governments that we work with change, like... You always need humans in the loop on things like this.
0: For sure. And in terms of policies that change over time, you know, one thing that I know a lot of folks think about when they're starting to build platforms is, you know, what they build versus what they leave to others to build. As you mentioned, you can't build everything. You're sort of focused on the core set of capabilities and then leave it to thousands of app developers to handle the rest. How do you guys think about competing with applications built on your platform? Does that create a conflict of interest? Does it dissuade people from building on your platform? Or do you do you sort of try to steer away from from the areas where folks are focused?
1: Totally. Yeah, this is a very complex question, something we think about a lot and take a lot of care in. And the reason is it's very important, you know, that our developer ecosystem trusts Shopify enough to build a business on it. Right. And we take that really seriously. At the same time, we have to think about continuing to grow Shopify because, you know, if we just rest on our laurels, that's actually not good for anyone in the long term. So sort of our our view on competition with our own ecosystem and things that we build is sort of the following. Like our overarching principle is that we believe in free markets and we believe in merchants having choice and as much choice as possible about the features they can use. So even if we do end up building something that, quote unquote, competes with our ecosystem, we'll never actually do that in parallel with like shutting down a category of apps or changing the algorithm to preference our own stuff. We want to just add to the choice that merchants have and leave it at that. So that's probably the first thing, and that's very important to us. The second thing is sort of like why we decide to ever build something, because if our ecosystem is already built it, why would we do that? And it goes back to that original product principle and really platform principle of we're only going to build the things that most merchants need most of the time. And the problem with that statement is that people interpret it as static, but it's not. So a very recent and simple example is something like email. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we just launched our own email product about a month ago after 15 years without an email product and an incredibly vibrant ecosystem that has and still is building lots of great email features. And the reason is that the world changed, like the growth of and the importance of being able to go direct to consumer was super important to merchants. And really with Google and Facebook growing so much over that course of the last decade to the point where you have to pay the tax to them or else you can't grow an audience. There are only two channels really that are left for a business owner to own like the, the brand and own their own channel, which is like their own online store and their domain and then email. Like that email customer list is really, and their own customer list is really one of the only pieces of long-term value that these businesses can build. Because otherwise, you're just renting a customer from a marketplace, or renting a customer from Facebook, as it were. So that's how the world changed over that period. And that's why we really needed to invest in having, and this is the key also, a simple version of email for all merchants on Shopify to be able to use. Because it's too important of a marketing channel for them for us not to have provided that out of the box. Now, what's interesting is that we launched that and it's only been a month, but I can almost guarantee that all the existing email apps on our platform will have grown a year from now as well, even though we launched one. And there's two reasons for that. One is that we launched a very simple, basic version of email that's made for businesses that are really on the lower end who aren't really going to be paying for an email service anyway, right? So we're just kind of competing in the free space. And then the other side is, like, we're going to keep that simple, actually. We're going to really keep it simple because all these apps are already doing such a great job on more advanced features and, like, retargeting and things like that. So the point is that we've added more choice and there's space for our entire ecosystem to exist.
0: Totally makes sense. It's competition in a sense, but it's going after a different segment of the market. And it's sort of the, the rising tide lifts all boats kind of argument as well. It's, it's an interesting example you brought up because we're, you know, as you know, based in Boston. So with Clavio and Privy in our backyards, that's a close to home one for sure.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And, and we try to do right by our partners here, right? Because we know, like, without any other context, that's going to be perceived as an outright threat. So, you know, we take the time. We, like, with Clavio and all those folks we got on the phone with them and told them that this was happening right and we explained the the why behind it And, and i think the long term thing that's so nuanced but is so critical is that by doing this a lot of the merchants that otherwise wouldn't have adopted email because it wasn't already natively integrated into shopify will actually have failed as businesses so in the long term we're actually increasing the pie for everybody and that's the most nuanced story to tell But it's also like we have high conviction that that is the reality of of what we're doing when we build something into the core.
0: And so I guess pivoting a little bit on the topic, you you mentioned you have, I think it was 3,400 apps built in the App Store. Is that right?
1: Yeah, 3,400 apps, yeah.
0: And up from nine when you started?
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so obviously, uh, you've been able to attract a number of folks to build on top of the platform. I mean, how how do you actually both increase awareness of the platform amongst developers, and then ultimately, you know, get companies to build on top of it?
1: For sure. I'd say like, I'd even start with before even awareness, which is critical, like there just has to be value there. So I think, you know, no one smells bullshit more than developers. And If your platform either doesn't do one of two things, it either doesn't have a really large customer base to sell into, or it doesn't have any actual like compute value in using it. So like compute value, I'd say is an example of like a developer focused platform like Twilio or Stripe, where by using the API itself, you are getting value as a developer, right? You're charging a card, or you're sending an SMS, Shopify is not really like that. Like, our API is really enabling people to get the data that they need to help the business that's installed that app. If it's not going to be developer, direct developer compute value, it has to be a value in enabling a developer to build a business. And therefore, you need to have enough customers for them to sell into, right? So, those things have to be true. I'd say to anyone thinking about platform is like, if you don't even have critical mass yet of like a certain type of customer that's very, that's highly attractive to people trying to build businesses and developers, then you should probably do that first. (laughs) Like build your own product and get a lot of customers before you think about platform. But let's assume that's true. I think what you have to do is if there's any attention that's more scarce, it's getting the attention of developers, let alone getting them willing to build something for on top of you, right? These are the most sought after folks in general in the world in terms of their time and their skills. So you have to start grassroots. You got to go like... To meetups, so you gotta do a lot of developer evangelism. If you're doing some really interesting technical stuff, then you should be thinking about content marketing. You should be thinking about how to get that out there. Cause developers will either, in my experience, anyway, they'll either like make a decision to build on something for like one or two reasons. One is to make a big business. And the other one is just, you know, developers are always constantly trying to build up their skill set and try new technologies. So if you have a platform that has an interesting or emerging technology on it, there are people that will often just build on it just to try it out. And then it's almost like a happy second that, oh, they can also make a little bit of money by building a useful thing at the same time. So you know that's kind of how we thought about it very early. It's really grassroots and not dissimilar to just building you know a product direct to any customer from zero to one. You just got to gotta get out there. You got to target customers or developers that are really focused in your space or whatnot and find people that have those problems and, and just really convince them and and do whatever you can at the beginning to make it like an obvious choice. So like for sure in our early days, convincing the first like dozen developers to build on us, you know, there's definitely promises of like, okay, we'll help market your apps to our customers. We'll work out some like really good co-marketing and potentially even revenue share with you and things like that, like you got to make it really compelling to solve a cold start problem. But then after that, it starts to just like any flywheel, just slowly, slowly start to accelerate. And, and then you don't have to deal with that. But yeah, it's really it is a grind at the beginning,
0: for sure. And I guess you talked a little bit about, you know, there's the compute value side, so the Twilio's of the world. But outside of that, sort of needing the compelling customer base to get people to build, you know, on top of your platform. And then earlier, you spent some time talking about some of the investments, both in terms of R and D as well as operations that you need to ensure, you know, you're building something that's usable, and then you're actually maintaining quality on your platform. So put all that together, some of what I'm hearing is, you know, this is maybe better suited for companies that have a little bit more resources, perhaps are further along. Is that an accurate statement in terms of your view on when it makes sense to actually build a platform? Or do you think this is something folks can do out of the gates as their sort of market entry strategy?
1: Great question. I think like if you are a company that is building like a developer platform with compute value then you don't need to think about that because that is your product right so you can just build that and, and go try to sell it to developers but if you're thinking about more of like the shopify type platform or a platform where the value that the developer is really selling to the customers that you're you're gaining through the product i do think there is an element of like timing that is important don't do that first because you don't have any value to offer developers, to be frank, right? So it has to come at the right time for your business where you've already amassed a, like, a decent amount of customers that is attractive to a set of developers. The nuance, though, I would say is understand that platforms are going to be important for like, your growth stage and your at-scale stage. So when you build the original product, you should be thinking API first a lot. Like I think from an engineering standpoint, you want to build into the architecture, the capability and the optionality to go towards being an open platform. We're not even necessarily open to being a platform faster than if you just build straight features and you have to kind of do a lot of refactoring and create that reality after because it is harder to unwind and kind of refactor everything and make yourself a safe to use and extensible platform. So that's the only nuance I'd say because... Like depending on your ambitions, like if you think of all tech companies over a $100 billion, they are all platforms. There's a reason why it is like the killer business model in software and the reason why it's necessary to get to certain levels of scale. So if you have those ambitions, I think that it's an engineering culture thing to really build in sort of this API and extensibility into how all the things are built, even if you're the only one that's building on it for now.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. And I guess parlaying from that, you know, one piece of advice it sounds like is build with the platform in mind, even if you're going to wait until, you know, you have real value to offer by way of a customer base before you actually open up that platform to folks externally. Anything else aside from that for folks launching platforms that you would say they should be paying attention to or thinking about while they're building their businesses?
1: Yeah, I'd say know that it's a high conviction type of product strategy. So like, you're not gonna get a lot of signal back for years that it was a right decision and it's gonna suck up a lot of resources, right? So just know that and kind of align with the exec team and the board on things like that early on, saying like, we believe this is important in the long run and this is gonna be a multi-year investment with very little signal coming back that it's working for a while, right? That's a really important thing because the worst thing that's gonna happen is you're gonna invest, year two years and you're going to get like three apps built in that time because you're still building the underlying platform at the same time and people are going to be questioning the validity, validity of it so you're playing a long game that's like the probably the most important thing i'd say to everyone and then the second is remember that platform is about fostering creativity so don't try to be too smart like about what it is that you predict is going to get built really like Think about how instead to work on the inside out. So how do you make something that is safe to open up in terms of data, in terms of, you know, how user experiences inject into your product and stuff like that, and then sort of see what happens, <laughs> right? I think like that's actually a little scary for people because it's even harder than to justify, we're going to build this thing. And then these, these other, these types of apps that'll do this, these things for our customers will emerge. Don't try to be too smart about it because the beauty of platform is the things that are unknown that get built on it. That's the real optionality. And we have had our own amazing history of great apps that have become major parts of what made Shopify grow and be successful, but are things that we never planned for. So I can give an example, like for better or worse, I know dropshipping has like a weird kind of rep, but the way I think about dropshipping is it's just a really smart business model for a merchant, which is... If I don't have to spend millions of dollars on inventory, then I shouldn't. (laughs) And the whole drop shipping ecosystem was sort of an emergent property of our platform because we enabled developers to do two things. We enabled them to create new products in a merchant store through the API, and then we enabled them to add new orders to that merchant shop. So what they ended up doing was we had all these app developers who were connecting with You know, factories all over the world who were able to like, Printful is a great example, like they're able to just build custom t shirts or mugs with your logo on it on demand. And we did not plan for these things. But then they became a huge growth engine for Shopify and our merchants, because it is such a logical and smart business model where it's very asset light, you don't have to buy any inventory, and you can get a store up and running. Those are like sorts of the, the examples of like the unpredictability, but the optionality at the same time of platform. And that's sort of the name of the game. So that's like a very difficult thing for someone to drive through the organization if there's not like understanding of that long term nuance from the exec team and, and the board. So that that's probably the biggest thing I'd say to anyone that's thinking about investing in it.
0: For sure. You have to be able to let go to see the fruits of it. Exactly. All right, so maybe to close this out here, one topic that's pretty hot at least in my world is this idea of whether or not you can build a big business on top of someone else's platform. So I think, you know, Viva Systems has been a great success story built on top of the Salesforce platform. You know, there's sort of differing points of view here. Some say you know, there are platforms that get large enough like that, where there really is sort of an adjacent business opportunity for someone to build on top of that platform and have, you know, a huge successful outcome. Others sort of steer clear from that, whether it be from the entrepreneur's perspective, or, you know, the VC perspective sitting in our shoes. So what's your point of view on that? Do you think there are big opportunities to build on top of other folks platforms?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think like, I won't be naive, there's going to be some sort of platform risk by going all in on any individual, right? And that's why the the trusting is so important. And for us, it's like we have to be open with the ecosystem or our ecosystem that like sometimes we'll build some stuff that's like, if not directly, but maybe indirectly competitive and whatnot. But we still want you here because like it, we want it to be a free market and, and for the merit of the features to win. But I think when it comes to being able to build a big business, it's going to be a function of the size of, you know, the platform you're building on. I'm happy to, to say that like we have very successful businesses built on Shopify. We have literal billion-dollar companies that have been homegrown and built on Shopify. So that's evidence of it. And maybe that's not big, big enough for some people, but wait for Shopify to grow 10 times more, and then maybe it'll be 10 billion. So I think like there is an element of a cap, I would say. You're probably not going to build a business bigger than the platform that you're on. <laughs> Maybe not, but then there are other, there are counter arguments to that. Like, you know, Netflix is multi-platform. One day it could be worth more than all the platforms that it's built on or any individual platform that it's built on. So I would say like, it is going to be a function of like, when you build on a platform, you're expediting your speed to market, both from a technical perspective and both from a distribution perspective. So there's tons of value in that. Like you're just reaching customers. And I think that that's a distribution's the biggest challenge for any business today. So, you know, just be o- eyes open about going all in on, on one hand that may feed you, but at the same time, choose the platform you're going to build on wisely based on their history, their actions, right? Are they the type that will undercut you and be antagonistic in the long run? Or are they the type that will encourage your growth, even if they do things that are also growing into the same pie?
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. Awesome. Well, Brandon, it has been such a pleasure learning from you. I actually could sit here and ask you questions for another three hours, but uh, (laughs) I don't know that you're up for that today. So (laughs) thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it.
1: For sure. I'll definitely be up for it one day for sure. (laughs) Let's do it. Yeah. It's great.
0: Oh, it's good.